they rebel against this vulgarity and against this tyranny. As a consequence, of course, they die. But before that, they live. You know, they live more fully and more truly than any of the other characters. Love greatly exists in the imagination. It does exist, of course, in real life too, but I don't think you can have a relationship without imagination at all. This youthful passion, as miraculous as it is, as important as it is, as divine as it is, is finite. Right, is as fragile as a cherry blossom. And we shouldn't say to that cherry blossom, you failed because you were not immortal. You had an excess of cherry blossomness. You should have saved yourself and lasted longer. Mm. No, 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 no. It blooms. It's here for a week. It makes all of our lives ten times better. And it goes because it has to go, because that's the nature of the thing. It's vulnerable. And if it wasn't vulnerable, it, it wouldn't be as miraculous. Hello, everyone. In today's recording, Claire and I will chat about Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. Plus, at the end of this recording, I will read my favorite love poem. Since love is the theme of today's discussion, I wanted to read an excerpt from one of my favorite pieces of writing on the subject. This is by Ralph Waldo Emerson. And I think you'll be able to tell that while he was writing this, he must have had Romeo in mind. Emerson writes this, But be our experience in particulars what it may, no man ever forgot the visitations of that power to his heart and brain, which created all things new, which was the dawn in him of music, poetry, and art, which made the face of nature radiant with purple light, the morning and the night varied enchantments, when a single tone of one voice could make the heart bound, and the most trivial circumstance associated with one form is put in the amber of memory." when he became all eye when one was present and all memory when one was gone, when the youth becomes a watcher of widows and studious of a glove, a veil, a ribbon, or the wheels of a carriage, when no place is too solitary and none too silent for him who has richer company and sweeter conversation in his new thoughts than any old friends, though best and purest, can give him. For the figures, the motions, the words of the beloved object are not like other images written in water, but, as Plutarch said, enameled in fire, and make the study of midnight. And for a discussion of the most famous embodiment of this kind of love, maybe in all of literature, let's go into that chat with me and Claire. So, Romeo and Juliet... Yep. <laughs> we have a lot to talk about. We're only doing one podcast for this play. A while back, I did five for King Lear, which, of course, is maybe a more complex play. Yeah. But I do not want to sell Romeo and Juliet short. I think Romeo and Juliet is one of those plays that is damaged by its popularity. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's so popular. It has such a good, such a wide and large reputation mm-hmm. that people don't realize it's how good it is it's even better than its popularity would lead you to believe i think yeah right it's not a taylor swift music video no and it's not some it's not some stupid melodramatic soap opera right about insane teenagers mm-hmm. i want to make sure that we cover the best and most important bits and move through the play somewhat chronologically mm-hmm but, you know, in 30 seconds, what would you say is your general impression now, having reread it again? 
this is probably embarrassing to say, but at 37, this was my first time reading it. It was, really? Yeah. I have seen it, and this was also embarrassing, <laughs> but it was the uh, Claire Danes and Leonardo DiCaprio version. So, Well, there's, there's nothing embarrassing about that. I mean, film adaptations are great. I mean, they're an important way into Shakespeare. Some of them are good. Some of them are bad. Yeah, they are an important way into Shakespeare, but then it never led me into the play. I think as an, I was about to say older person, but yeah, I mean, not a teenager anymore. Um, I think reading it in my late 30s, it's a different experience probably than I would have had as a young person. This time, I paid attention to the parents more. I think I I was... Uh, sympathizing with the parents' desire for Julia to be comforted when her cousin was killed and to help her be taken care of in life, helping her um, marry somebody who would be a good match. Of course, um, her parents, her dad especially, didn't go about it, though. Best way in many ways was controlling. And And I was also impressed with Juliet's, despite being so young, she, um, she was a complex character with, I think, great intelligence and eloquence. It'd be easy to make her to make her look like a stupid young person. It's hard to overpraise her as a person and her depiction, Shakespeare's depiction of her as a character. Yeah. It's kind of infinitely stunning. There are four characters in the play that I think immediately jump out as recognizable humans. Romeo and Juliet, of course, and then the nurse and Mercutio. Yeah, yeah no, but Juliet, Romeo is uh, surprisingly... Yeah, he's interesting. He's not as interesting as Juliet. Mm-hmm. It, it would be hard to be more interesting than Juliet. I mean, only Hamlet and Falstaff and King Lear, maybe. I know, and you know what? I couldn't help but think and draw some uh, parallels between her and Cordelia. There is a certain... Uh, mm-hmm. Even though Juliet does lie, she does uh, deceive people in this play. But she does it for the sake of being true to herself. So she has this attachment to truth, and she wants to marry for love, and she wants to, she doesn't want to live a lie with Mm -hmm. this um, Paris. Yeah, it just reminded me of uh, Cordelia's attachment to living truth. There's lots of similarities between this play and King Lear. Shakespeare is obsessed with this question of the relationship between the generations and parents and children. Yes, yeah, I was moved by. Juliet's father, I mean, like I said, he is in many, way, in many ways abusive, but his heartbreak is moving, at least. I'm not saying I like them, per se, <laughs> or at all, but I guess I was moved because it reminded me of King Lear and this obsession that Shakespeare seemed to have, parent-daughter relationships. He's not Lear. I mean, he's. No. I see him as kind of two-dimensional, tyrannical... Yes. Representation of the ways in which the older generation can stifle and destroy the younger generation. Yeah. We should maybe start at the beginning. Why does this play start with this explosively violent encounter between these people biting their thumbs at each other, and then they draw swords and start fighting? I think, first of all, to foreshadow the violence of the end, but also to set it up against the, the love story. There's always the tensions all throughout of the warring side and the loving side. <laughs> it is a play about love and war. Yeah. About love and violence and the ways in which they're similar, the ways in which they're different, the ways in which they're in conflict. 
Mm-hmm. We're not in conflict the how one might be more powerful than the other. Mm-hmm. How they're similar. Let's start with this question, and then I want to move through several scenes kind of in order. Why should we take this romance seriously? Why isn't it melodramatic? Why isn't the love that Romeo and Juliet have for each other silly? It's quite easy, I suppose, to mock or parody, mm-hmm. especially in our jaded postmodern age where we're so reluctant to take anything seriously. Mm-hmm. I reread it this time and found their love immensely moving, immensely meaningful, totally sincere. And I have a feeling that lots of people who read this play, I mean me, an earlier version of me, didn't really feel this way about it. I thought it was slightly contrived or artificial or, you know, for dramatic purposes only. They have to love each other for the sake of the plot. But Mm. it just struck me as, this time it just struck me as beyond mockery. I feel like it's the most rational and mature thing that happens in the play. I mean, I guess if you think about her family and his family and the uh, the violence, I don't want to say political. It's a kind of political choice to choose, um, yeah, love over all that war. Well, that's exactly what I mean. It's they are living the most nobly and courageously and rationally. Everyone else in the play is juvenile and immature. Everyone else. It's true. Think about Mercutio. Think about the the parents, the fathers. Yeah. Uh, the nurse, even the friar, ends up at the very end being a kind of coward and running away when Juliet needs her the most. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a tragedy, but it's not a tragedy of character. I don't think that Romeo and, and Juliet act badly per se. Romeo starts to it near the end. But that's not why this play ends tragically. I think their situation is the tragedy. The reason why this play is a tragedy is because they're stuck in this tragic situation. Yeah. The, the, they're living in this city full of pointless family feuds and horrible fathers and mm-hmm. other people around them, like Mercutio and the nurse. If they're not horrible fathers, they are crass. And for Mercutio, there is no such thing as love. There is only sex. Mm. And there's not even really sex. There's just dirty jokes about sex. Mm. So they're living in a world that is either filled with tyrannical fathers or... Vulgarity. Or vulgarity, that's the word, that's the perfect word. And in the midst of this, they do not let their passion be stifled. They do not become tyrannical themselves. They do not become vulgar themselves. Mm, They they rebel against this vulgarity and against this tyranny. As a consequence, of course, they die. But before that, they live. You know, they live more fully and more truly than any of the other characters. Name one other character in this play who is alive, by which I mean who has tasted what life can offer. Zero people. Mm. Romeo and Juliet say to each other, let's insist on living. You know what I mean? And they do. And I just find that so noble and so heroic. They live in a way that no other people in the play do or can. So some people call this a a tragedy of excess love. Like, oh, they were too obsessed with each other and they were driven to madness by their love. But they're in a dead-end situation, and they chose to, in in the brief moments that they had together, they chose to make them meaningful and real. Yeah, I like I like your view of um, um, of them rising above the vulgarity of their situations and their feuding families. Well, let's look into some of that vulgarity. 
the nurse is such a great character. I mean, great in her depiction, not great in her person, in her character. She's quite a despicable person, I think, actually. She has this wonderful little soliloquy here. I'll, I'll try to read it quickly. This is in Act 1, Scene 3. And um, Juliet's mother and the nurse are talking about how old Juliet is. And the nurse says this, Even or odd, of all days in the year, come Lammas Eve at night, shall she be fourteen. Susan and she, God rest all Christian souls, were of an age. Susan is the nurse's own daughter. Well, Susan is with God. She was too good for me. But as I said, on Lammas Eve at night shall she be fourteen. That shall she marry. I remember it well. Tis since the earthquake now eleven years, and she was weaned. I never shall forget it. Of all the days of the year upon that day, for I had then laid wormwood to my dug. Bitter herb to wean kids off of nursing. Yeah? For I had then laid wormwood to my dug, sitting in the sun under the dove house wall. My lord and you were then at Mantua. Nay, I do bear a brain. But as I said, when it did taste the wormwood on the nipple of my dug and felt it bitter, pretty fool to see it tetchy and fall out with the dug. Shake, quoth the dove house. So the earthquake is shaking this little dove house. "'Twas no need, I trow, to bid me trudge, and since that time it is eleven years. For then she could stand high alone, nay, by the rood, she could have run and waddled all about, for even the day before she broke her brow, and then my husband, God be with his soul, he was a merry man, took up the child. Yea, quoth he, dost thou fall upon thy face? Thou wilt fall backward when thou hast more wit. So there's this little toddler that this old nasty old man is making this dirty joke about she fell on her face and got this bump on her head. Mm-hmm. He makes this joke about her lying on her back, you know, that will fall backward when thou hast more wit. The nurse just quoted her husband and, and then keeps talking. And by my holly dam, the pretty wretch left crying and said, I, to see now how a jest shall come about, I warrant, and I shall live a thousand years. I never should forget it. Wilt thou not, Jewel? quoth he, and pretty fool it stinted, and said, I, and then Juliet's mother <laughs> breaks in rightly so and says, Enough of this, I pray thee, hold thy peace. The nurse can't shut up. Yes, madam, yet I cannot choose but laugh to think it should leave crying and say, I, and yet I warrant it had upon its brow a bump as big as a young cockerel's stone. A uh, rooster's testicle, I guess. <laughs> okay. it's like every metaphor is gross, yeah? A perilous knock, and it cried bitterly, Yea, quoth my husband, falst upon thy face, thou wilt fall backward when thou comest to age, wilt thou not, Jewel? It stinted, and said, I. Right? And then Juliet, finally, and stint thou too, I pray thee, nurse, say I. So like everyone's telling her to shut up, and she keeps making these horribly sexual jokes about this three-year-old, <laughs> you know? So she's just immensely vulgar, this woman. Nothing immensely sacred. vulgar. So that's who Juliet has had at her side her whole life. I mean, I think the nurse comes alive as a real person, but what kind of person? What's Juliet's response to this? Stop. So who is the real adult? Who is more mature in this situation? I mean, Juliet by far. Who does Romeo have for a counselor? In the very next scene, we see this uh, pairing. We have Juliet and the nurse, and then we have the pairing of Romeo and Mercutio. What kind of person is Mercutio? Just, just a loud talks before he thinks aggressive. <laughs> equally body i mean he in fact he and the nurse meet up later in the play and then he's asked what time of day it is and um makes a sexual joke in the answer i mean he can't even look at a clock without thinking about <laughs> sex 
You know what I mean? He has this wonderful speech about Queen Mab and her little train of atomized fairies and where dreams come from. But it's really just a sexual fantasy, I think. It's immensely self-indulgent and prolonged sexual fantasy. And Romeo does the same thing that Juliet does. Interrupts him and says, more or less, be quiet. Romeo says, I mean, I would read this little Queen Mab speech. It's very beautiful, but for the sake of time, I won't. Romeo interrupts him and says, peace, peace, Mercutio, peace. Thou talkst of nothing. Yes. <laughs> you know what I mean? So again, Romeo, we're introduced to Romeo, and we get to see him assert himself as the grown-up. How do you feel about the way Romeo's introduced as uh, moping? Yeah, that's a good question. Why does he have to? Why is he already in love? Yeah. Why is he already lovesick? He hasn't even met Juliet. My first answer would be that that's who Romeo is. Somebody who feels deeply. He is a lover. I mean, he loves. Yeah. So it's it's to introduce us to an important part of his character. Also, I think it has to be. He has to be in love in order for his love to Juliet to be put in proper context. Mm-hmm. He seems to be so in love with Rosaline, but Juliet, he's, he's so much more taken with Juliet that he's willing to leave, leave off thinking about this, this prior woman mm-hmm. and give himself heart and soul to Juliet. You know, it's, it's just to heighten his love for Juliet. And again, it's easy to, it's easy to call him wishy-washy or say that this is just a, I mean, in fact, the priest, so I would counter your question with another question. The priest says, does his love lie in his eyes or heart? Mm -hmm. It's easy to see Romeo as a person whose love lies in his eyes. Yeah, because how can he have had time to get to know her? Yeah, you can see a person and fall in love and then be surprised because they're not who you thought they were or who you invented. Mm Mm-hmm. But what are you supposed to do? I mean, you... Yeah, it still happens. <laughs> visual attraction is real, and we pursue these attractions, and some fizzle out and some don't, so... I also wanted to ask you, when you were talking about Romeo, the way he was introduced, don't you feel like he has some similarities with Hamlet in that way? The characters in this book are telling him that he's just feeling too much mm. in different parts of the book. Mm. In Hamlet, it's introduced... As uh, mourning his father too much. Right. Yeah. Obviously, in some ways, there's no comparison. I mean, Hamlet is... Right. Hamlet's much more complex, and he's much smarter, and mm-hmm. is plagued by thinking in a way that Romeo isn't. Yes, Hamlet feels deeply, and is accused of that at the beginning of that play. Mm-hmm. That's true. But I don't see Romeo as an overthinker. The way that Hamlet tortures himself mostly is... Thinking, 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 thinking. He can't stop thinking. Right. And Romeo, I, in a way, maybe is more mature than Hamlet. You know, he, yeah. He can see straight. <laughs> yeah, he knows. In fact, actually, yeah, there's this wonderful moment in Act One, Scene One. Benvolio is trying to convince Romeo to not keep thinking so obsessively about Rosaline. Mm-hmm. And Romeo says, "Oh, teach me how I should forget to think." Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's a wonderful little Mm -hmm. pre-hamlet hamlet Hamlet moment Mm -hmm. hamlet i mean i think part of wisdom is knowing how to not think at certain times they meet at this masked ball there's this very famous moment in act one scene five where they speak in this sonnet together Mm -hmm. their dialogue composes a sonnet but we all know these lines are very famous lines right romeo says if i profane with my unworthiest hand this holy shrine 
The gentle sin is this, my lips, two blushing pilgrims, ready stand to smooth that rough touch with a tender kiss. Juliet, good pilgrim, you do wrong your hand too much, which mannerly devotion shows in this, for saints have hands that pilgrims' hands do touch, and palm to palm is holy palmer's kiss. Romeo, have not saints' lips and holy palmer's too? Juliet, I, pilgrim, lips that they must use in prayer. Romeo, oh then, dear saint, let lips do what hands do. Then pray, grant thou, lest faith turn to despair. Juliet, saints do not move, though grant for prayer's sake. Romeo, then move not while my prayer's effect I take. Thus from my lips, by thine my sin is purged. Juliet, then have my lips the sin that they have took. Romeo, sin from my lips, O trespass sweetly urged, give me my sin again. He kisses her again. I mean, <laughs> this is more than love at first sight. Their their first interaction is so harmonious. Yeah, they're clearly um, intellectual matches. Totally. I mean, Plato has this theory in one of his dialogues about lovers being more or less two halves of one egg that are separated at birth. And we forever move through the world trying to find our other half. Mm. Our, our literal other half, we feel not whole mm-hmm. without them. Romeo and Juliet come together and speak in the sonnet and are on the exact same wavelength. And this, I think, is meant to kind of sanction that this is more than just a physical attraction. And they're right. speaking in these religious metaphors. Mm. You know, I mean, it's as if religion itself and the friar is fully on board with their love and is willing to d- defy the authorities and help them out. I think their love is the opposite of vulgarity. Mm. It is the opposite of Mercutio and the nurse's crassness. It is something that is holy. Right from the very start, their love is something that's holy. Mm. I found this play to be surprisingly easy to read. Yeah, I'm interested in that, actually. I'm quite surprised to hear you say that. There's so many puns in this play. Yeah, maybe I missed a lot of them. But One of Shakespeare's <laughs> least popular attributes as a writer <laughs> and also this play is more rhymed yeah. it's much has, it involves much more rhyme and the language is slightly more ornate well language wise maybe the thing that usually makes my brain smoke is when there's so many characters and so many mm. subplots that i just can't keep up with on top of the language you know what i mean right. but this was very straightforward there were no subplots even right that's true i don't have anything against subplots but it was really just Romeo and Juliet, which seems to be an argument in and of itself. And I would think that the best, the, the best, most famous parts of this play are famous and good for a reason. I mean, they're quite clear. I mean, there's this balcony scene. Yeah. How did you respond to it this time? Well, I had never read it before. Well, remember? It, yeah, but you know it. I mean, that's a thing. That's like right. You can't not know you it. You can't yeah. not know it. It's you see it in movies. You see it parodied in this cartoon and that book and right i you know i had seen it so many times um you know as a joke people some young girl clutching her chest (laughs) Mm. dreamily looking out of the window i I guess i was surprised by how how eloquent it was and and Mm. unsentimental i keep saying juliet is eloquent but I, i think she's smart and she she doesn't um like the nurse just uh let anything just no matter how clumsy or silly of a metaphor fall out of her mouth, you know? Yeah. She's she's more classy than that. And so is Romeo. I mean, you know, he sees her on the balcony, and so this is Act 2, Scene 2. 
and says, her eyes discourse, her eye discourses, I will answer it. And then immediately I am too bold. So he's kind of second guessing his courage. Mm -hmm. Tis not to me, she speaks, two of the fairest stars in all the heaven having some business to entreat her eyes to twinkle in their spheres till they return. What if her eyes were there in space, in the stars, and they, the stars, in her head? So what if her eyes and the stars traded, place in a, mm -hmm. traded places? The brightness of her cheek would shame those stars as daylight doth a lamp. Her eyes in heaven would through the airy region stream so bright that birds would sing and think it were not night. See how she leans her hand upon her cheek. Oh, that I were a glove upon that hand that I might touch that cheek. She's the opposite of pretty boy Mercutio sex jokes. The opposite of crassness, the opposite of vulgarity. It is cosmic. Yeah. It is something celestial, this love, something divine and cosmic. And Juliet, as you say, like, has this wonderfully famous what's in a name speech where, again, some of the most mature lines in the play, what is this pointless feud that our families are engaged in? It doesn't matter. It's so meaningless. So she yeah. has the maturity to transcend these petty bickerings of her culture. I, I feel like that line is, uh, has a really odd existentialism to it, too. Not just the family feuds, but what's in a name. Don't you, I mean, haven't you ever felt that way when you feel really strongly about something or someone, you start to kind of question everything. It's almost as if she's also wondering, how could a name describe something this cosmic, like you said, if things take right. on this cosmic importance and grandeur? Don't you feel like that there's a bit of a, an existentialist moment there? Well, do you mean full, uh, a moment full of dread? There's a touch of dread, I think. You know, as with any huge experience, there's a sense of dread that it won't last or it won't, it won't work out, you know. <laughs> well, there is a sense of, yeah, vastness. Probably persuade me that dread is an ingredient in this kind of love. I love, what, so yeah, there's that famous, what's, what's in a name speech. And then they start talking. And Romeo says, what shall I swear by, right? What shall I swear by that I love you? And Juliet says, do not swear at all. Or if thou wilt, swear by thy gracious self, which is the god of my idolatry. <laughs> I love that. I... <laughs> Why are you laughing? I don't know. Because you think I want to be worshipped like that by you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I do and I don't. I mean, when Juliet says, deny thy father, so, o, o Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo? Deny thy father and refuse thy name. I think she is wisely announcing the need that the younger generation has to break from past one to a certain extent. In order for the younger generation to self-actualize and become itself, it has to assert itself and deny that the, the fathers have to be denied. Yeah. They just have to. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, kids never grow up. Mm -hmm. So her saying, deny thy father, again, is a very mature thing to say. I find in this context, I read it as her saying, let's become who we were meant to be and not become the puppets that our parents want us to become. Mm. So when she says, the God of my idolatry, I just think, you know, it's that biblical thing. It's like, leave father and mother and cleave unto thy, you know, you have to give up the old gods and embrace the new gods. Don't you think that's part of love? You, your, your past love allegiances become less. Yeah. Again, it reminds me of Cordelia when she says, why do... My sisters have husbands if they love the, my father all or something. Like exactly that. right. I mean, of course, they should love their husbands more. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think so. Mm -hmm. And and 
you hear the hesitancy in my voice. It's like, well, that's slightly weird to say, or it means we will we'll love our parents less when we get married. Maybe not, but maybe that is a form of idolatry. You know, true love is a form of idolatry that... And maybe there's not that much choice in it. It's just ideally would just happen that way that that you would want to give most of your attention and time to that person. Yeah, I just think it's a it's it's extremely brazen. She's 13 years old and she's committing blasphemy out loud. You know, mm. I just love the brazenness. And these might be the best lines in the play. Juliet says, "And yet I wish, but for the thing I have, my bounty is as boundless as the sea." My love as deep. The more I give to thee, the more I have. For both are infinite. Kind of reminds me again of that idea of their love taking on a kind of cosmic importance. They go beyond their names and their life circumstances. They are part of something greater now, something eternal almost. Eternal is the word. It transcends time. This love mm. transcends time. So not only yes. does it transcend this petty culture, mm-hmm. but it transcends. It's very much like Lear. Um, remember that bit at the end where Cordelia and him are in prison, mm-hmm. and Cordelia is still very defiant and is defying the guards. And he says, "No, no, no. You and I." Lear says to her, "We will away and sing like birds in a cage, oh. and we will wear out pacts and sects of great ones who talk about who's in and who's out and rumors about courtly news." And we will just exist for each other, mm. as if they're untouchable and eternal. Yeah. And I think that this is love. The more you give, love is not a finite. What do I know about love? I mean, what the play seems to know about love is that it's a, it's it's not a finite resource that you don't run out of it. You. Yeah, you don't it's just infinite. It's boundless. Juliet's father, Capulet. You don't just decide. Paris is good looking. He has a lot of money. You know, marry him, that's love, right? That's mm. love for you right there. <laughs> well, it's not even remotely love. It's not even a species of love. It's it's politics. It's convenience. It's economics. Yes. You know, yes. Juliet is right to say that love is infinite. I don't know how to not sound cliche and like <laughs> no, a Hallmark hard. card. It's quite hard, <laughs> but Juliet does it better than I think anyone has. I really think that. Meanwhile, the bad boys are stirring up trouble in Verona. Mercutio is picking fights with everyone he meets, including Tybalt, who he calls wonderfully a prince of cats. <laughs> Isn't that great? <laughs> well, it, it, it so perfectly encapsulates Tybalt's mindless temper and petty, hissing, scratchy personality. <laughs> I love it. And there's this wonderful bit in Act 2 where Mercutio lists all these famous lovers like Laura and Petrarch, Dido, Cleopatra, Helen... And basically just calls them all whores and prostitutes, as is his want, you know. So he degrades everything, you know. Mm. If the world was full of Marcuccio's, this is what I hate about the stupid postmodern irony, nothing can be sincere. Mm. Sincerity is dead. But some things are sincere. Love is one of them. The nurse asks him, what time is it? And Marcuccio says, the body hand of the dial is now upon the prick of noon. Oh my gosh, come on. <laughs> right, so again. I think like, we all know people like that. <laughs> we all know. I, I, yeah, I had this friend in junior high who was exactly like that. He just wanted attention and everything, everything he may, he found sexual innuendo in. And it's might maybe as provocative twice and then it becomes instantly boring. Yes, that is the main problem. It's not even because it's offensive. It's just boring, right? It just becomes so boring. 
The nurse, I love this. This is still an act two scene four. The nurse says to Romeo after Mercutio leaves, the nurse says, I pray you, sir, what saucy merchant was this that was so full of his ropery? And Romeo says, a gentleman nurse that loves to hear himself talk and will speak, <laughs> speak more in a minute than he will stand to in a month. <laughs> Even Romeo seems sick of his friend. And then, of course, he's going to meet this young, beautiful Juliet who can talk to him the way he clearly craves to talk to people in metaphors and sonnets, literally in sonnets. And about, and again, a person who takes things seriously, who yes. a person in whom he sees boundless infinity. Mercutio is boring because he has one shtick. Juliet is the opposite of boring. She's infinitely compelling because she is bottomless like this sea that she describes. Right. And the way we were introduced to Romeo and even in his name, you know, as a person who feels that much, it would be absolutely excruciating to be surrounded by people who just will never take things seriously and who you can't have like a real conversation with. And I love what love does to Romeo. So this is in act three, scene one, quite an important scene. Just as you say, he's still surrounded by all these shallow, quarrelsome, vulgar troublemakers. Mm -hmm. He walks in on Tybalt and Mercutio, hissing at each other like cats, about to come to blows. And Tybalt says this to Romeo. Tybalt, of course, is Juliet's cousin. Tybalt says this to Romeo. Romeo, the love I bear thee can afford no better term than this. Thou art a villain. So there it is, a kind of naked, provocative insult. Mm -hmm. And this, this whole city is so violent... It seems that anybody else in this whole city would, would respond with stabbing Tybalt immediately in the face. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. How does Romeo respond? Romeo says, Tybalt, the reason that I have to love thee doth much excuse the appertaining rage to such a greeting. Villain am I none. Therefore, farewell. I see thou knowest me not. Wow, can you imagine being able to respond that way to somebody who insults you? It's so, it's like, He's channeling Christ at this moment. You know, it's so, I find this so beautiful and so powerful and so mature. It's this like immensely gentle and benevolent and forgiving. Forgive them for they know not what they do kind of thing. It's like, Tybalt, you have no idea how much I love you. You don't know the reasons why I love you. And I can see that you're not in your right mind. You don't know me. I see thou knowest me not. You don't know who I am. You don't know actually how connected and beloved I am to you. Love has transformed Romeo. He is, at this moment in the play at least, a king among men. He's not one of these hot-blooded youths who just go around. Not yet. I think he does kind of succumb to this. Yeah. But for the for the time being, love has transformed him. Mm -hmm. Love has transformed him, but Mercutio, who isn't a Capulet or a Montague, so really has no dog in this fight per se, he insists on having a dog in this fight and picks a fight, right? And um, Tybalt kills Mercutio, and this kind of breaks the spell that love has cast on Romeo. And it, this is a tragedy, you know, to see the spell that love cast on him begin to erode or evaporate, because this, he reminds me very much of Achilles. Didn't he remind you of Achilles in this moment? His best friend has just been killed. Mm -hmm. And um, in a rage, in a very Achilles-like rage, Romeo forgets this what love has taught him about life. Mm. And instead of saying, like, I still forgive you, I still love you, kills Tybalt. Not thinking of the consequences. Not thinking of the consequences. Mm. It also goes to show how deeply our culture is ingrained in us. The way we grow up, the kind of people we 
that raise us, even Romeo, can um, completely succumb to mm. all those things that he technically he knows better, but that's right. But it's just this huge part of him. That's why I say if people if people say that this is a tragedy about excess love or love that is t- unbridled, I say no. It, it's about love that's not powerful enough. I mean, at the height of its power, love turned him into a peacemaker mm-hmm. and created for a moment a bubble of peace mm-hmm. in this warring city, yeah. which is better than no bubble of peace. So what this play, what this city needs and what life needs is more love, not less. I know. What's the problem with excess love? <laughs> yeah, if, It didn't work here. If this is what it does to people, if it does to people what it does to Romeo, then this is a spell Mercutio needs to fall under. The spell mm-hmm. Tybalt needs to fall under, the Capulets and the Montagues, you know, everyone needs a dose of this. I, know. I feel like the book is its so short, the play is so short. Like I said, there's no subplots or anything, and things move so quickly, especially their, you know, the way they fall in love, that it seems to be arguing what a huge miracle it is when it does happen, when it ever even happens. I totally agree. Even for however short it lasts. I totally agree. All odds were against them. And look at what they had for, you know, three scenes. They had an island of bliss. And for a little while, Romeo was able to rise above all that hatred. Yeah. Which is not nothing. You know, that's really not nothing. Yeah. Horribly, tragically, and sadly, Juliet doesn't know that these murders have taken place. And she says these wonderful things. I'll read this and I want you to tell me what you think. Mm-hmm. So she's just alone. Gallop apace, you fiery-footed steeds, towards Phoebus' lodging. Such a wagoner as Phaeton would whip you to the west and bring in cloudy night immediately. Spread thy close curtain, love-performing night, that runaway's eyes may wink and Romeo leap to these arms untalked of and unseen. Lovers can see to do their amorous rites by their own beauties, or if love be blind, it best agrees with night. Come, civil night, thou sober-suited matron, all in black, and learn me how to lose a winning match played for a pair of stainless maidenhoods. Or they haven't even consummated their marriage. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that it's compared to a match back to the two fe- the feuds. Mm. She keeps talking. Hood my unmanned blood, baiting in my cheeks with thy black mantle till strange love grow bold. Think true love acted simple modesty. Come, knight. Come, Romeo. Come, thou day in night. For thou wilt lie upon the wings of night whiter than new snow upon a raven's back. Come, gentle knight. Come, loving, black-browed knight. Give me my Romeo. And when I shall die, take him and cut him out in little stars, and he will make the face of heaven so fine that all the world will be in love with night and pay no worship to the garish sun. Oh, I have bought the mansion of a love, but not possessed it. And though I am sold... Not yet enjoyed. This sound is so beautiful. I, that is beautiful. Why? <laughs> this is clearly sexual. Yeah. Come, knight. Come, Romeo. Give me my Romeo. Yeah. How beautiful is it that she says, I have bought the mansion of a love, but not possessed it, and though I am sold, not yet enjoyed. Well, the poetry is gorgeous, though. The metaphors are amazing. Again, um, turning their love into something that has cosmic importance. No, how great is it when she's like, cut him up into pieces, scatter him through the st- stars into the sky. Everyone will be in love with And the people night. will love night because of how beautiful he will make the night sky. Mm. It is good to talk about the sexual aspect of it because we've talked about how all the other people in the play are absolutely vulgar. 
And here she is talking about it, um, but in a beautiful way and in a way that honors sexuality rather than defiles it. It celebrates sexuality. Yeah. That's exactly right. And it celebrates sexuality not because it's like a means to procreation or some metaphor for some other thing. Just for the mystery of attraction. Just for for the pleasure of it. She wants to be enjoyed and she wants to possess this mansion of love. Yeah. I don't think we should balk at this. I think we should we should rejoice that these two people have learned in this island of vulgarity and pettiness and war and violence that these two people have learned how to enjoy one of the pleasures of being alive, as you say, in a way that isn't shallow and petty, but that seems eternal. Romeo was banished for killing Tybalt. Can't come into Verona. The friar, who helps them out, says, I'll give the armor to keep off that word, the word of banishment. Adversity's sweet milk philosophy to comfort thee, though thou art banished. Romeo says, Yet banished hang up philosophy, unless philosophy can make a Juliet. Displant a town, reverse a prince's doom. It helps not, it prevails not. Talk no more. I love it when when Shakespeare gets into the inadequacy of language, (laughs) when he starts having characters have these sorts of thoughts about uh, how pointless words seem compared to um, the things that they're supposed to signify. It's profoundly ironic, of course, because look at who's saying it. Exactly. As that billboard says, words never had it so lucky, you know? <laughs> Shakespeare, Shakespeare, no one has used words as well. Mm-hmm. Shakespeare, so maybe philosophy can't make a Juliet, but poetry literally did make a Juliet. But who knows, maybe Shakespeare was thinking of a specific Juliet or a male version of her. <laughs> but if he was, I mean, I get it. It, it. it cuts both ways. It's bittersweet. Yeah, literally, he's not going to be able to conjure a, a, a flesh and blood being or resurrect a person. So there will always be that inadequacy. There will always be that sense of powerlessness. And yet, Juliet as an idea, as a collection of words, as an image in our minds, is immortal. Yeah, and I also wonder, you know, Keats in O2, uh, Ode on a Grecian Urn says, um, unheard songs are sweeter. Yeah. It almost makes me wonder if um, some of these characters that we love so much, like Juliet, if if we don't love them so much because they are, in a way, unheard. They're, they're not real, and our imagination can do so much to... Do you know what I mean? There's like limitless, limitless ways we can create Juliet in our mind. And don't you think that this relates directly to the idea of love, the concept of love? I mean... A very favorite activity of Shakespeare fans is to imagine the sixth acts of Shakespeare plays. You, you know, uh, where are the lovers of all those comedies? <laughs> where are they now? <laughs> where are they now? They're going to end up in slightly bored, maybe extremely dysfunctional, at best, mildly cliche suburban marriages. Marriages very much like Shakespeare's own marriage with Anne Hathaway, where they have more or less fine feelings towards each other, but... Long-distance relationship. (laughs) Yeah, totally devoid of the passion. So, had Romeo and Juliet lived, gotten married, moved away... Connecticut. This kind of passion cannot be sustained. (laughs) Yeah. So, I'm bringing this up in response to your comment about unheard melodies are sweeter. What would we say in response to somebody who said, yes, but this love is... It's all in their minds. Mm. A cynic might say, it's all in their minds. It's not real love. This isn't a marriage. It's a fiction. They're living in their imaginations. They haven't consummated it. They haven't lived together for 40 years. They don't know each other very well. 
They're inventing, are they inventing versions of each other that they're falling in love with? If unheard melodies are sweet, is imaginary love sweeter than lived experience? Yeah, that's a tough question. You know, Faulkner said that he believes that love only exists in novels. Is that true, though? I wonder if you couldn't say that, like, love greatly exists in the imagination. It does exist, of course, in real life, too, but... I don't think you can have a relationship without imagination at all. It, right. it isn't possible. Everybody's relationship is, I think, built on or imagined. <laughs> I, or I think you you're exactly, my thought. No, I think you're exactly right. I think the reason why this play is so popular all over the world, in any culture, in any language, in any century, in any decade is because people recognize themselves in it. This is not an unrealistic depiction of love. We all fall in love in our fantasies. Yes. And with our fantasies. We see with our fantasies. This is unavoidable. It's just unavoidable. Mm -hmm. We can't fully know. I don't fully know you. We've been married for 12 years. I don't fully know you. (laughs) You're still constantly perplexing me (laughs) and surprising me, you know? I'll stand by my previous comments. I think this is absolutely important and good. You know, it makes us go through the world holding up our hands to people who are about to stab us and saying... You have no idea how much I love you. And if you think I'm your enemy, then you don't know me. You walk through the world thinking that the sewers smell like roses and (laughs) that, you know, all the winds are soft and gentle and Mm. every piece of food tastes better than the last. And I mean, this is good. We, We don't want a world without these noble and sweet delusions. Right. Yeah. I shouldn't even really call them delusions. I mean, of course, creations. Kind of... I'll call them creations. You know, yeah, yeah, maybe it's a creation, but it's still real. We create it, but it, that doesn't mean it's fake. Right. There's so many aspects and stages of love, of a romantic relationship. And let's face it, this this first initial stage is nothing short of miraculous. Well, that's another thing, too. It's like, so you can't deflate my excitement for this love. By pointing out to me the obvious fact that if they had gotten married and lived, that 20 years from now they would have been sad and like Anne Hathaway and Shakespeare and distant and cold. Yeah, but so what? For Mm -hmm. a moment they had this and what they had was nothing short of a miracle. Are we supposed to then therefore say, let's not even fall in love? Let's let's ignore the passion? Let's mock the passion? No, of course not. You get the miracles that you get. I know it might be a weird comparison, but it's you wouldn't watch like an Olympic performance and be like yeah but in 30 years that person's gonna die of cancer you know or have a pot belly (laughs) they won't be able to run that fast in 30 years so this is nothing this doesn't matter this is not impressive no it does matter and it is impressive it matters because it happened and it shows you the some pinnacle of human experience that's an excellent comparison so the capulet juliet's father is trying to set her up with paris she of course doesn't want to hang hang the young baggage he says disobedient wretch If you don't marry Paris, I'll never speak to you again. She consorts with the friar. The friar gives her this plan of this potion that will knock her out. And then she pretends to obey, says she'll marry Paris. Juliet, in in the peak of crisis, in a moment of utmost need, turns to who else but the nurse? More or less a kind of mother figure. It's really the nurse that's been raising her, I think. Mm. And says, oh God, oh nurse, how shall this be prevented? My husband is on earth, my faith in heaven. How shall that faith return again to earth unless that husband send it me from heaven by leaving earth? Comfort me. Counsel me. Right? Mm -hmm. What sayest thou? 
Hast thou not a word of joy, some comfort, nurse? And what does the nurse say? Faith, here it is. Romeo is banished, and all the world to nothing that he dares ne'er come back to challenge you. Or if he do, it needs must be by stealth. Then, since the case so stands as now it doth, I think it best you married with the county, right married Paris. Oh, he's a lovely gentleman. Romeo's a dishclout to him. An eagle, madam, hath not so green, so quick, so fair an eye as Paris hath. Right? Beshrew my very heart, I think you are happy in this second match. It excels your first. Or if it did not, your first is dead. So insensitive. <laughs> it's so insensitive. It's so untrue. It's said for a matter of, I don't know, like she's just... But it's more, it's worse than insensitive. Well, somebody who's basically raised her <laughs> should know better than... Well, she doesn't know her at all. And if some third guy comes along, she'd be like, oh, yeah, he's the best of all, you know? Mm. It's it's just so lukewarm and blowing with every wind that blows. And, oh, if this is the easiest thing, then you should just do it. And Juliet pretends to agree with this advice. Juliet says, well, thou hast comforted me marvelous much. But as soon, <laughs> but as, soon as the nurse leaves... This is Juliet's reaction. Ancient damnation, O most wicked fiend. Is it more sin to wish me thus forsworn, or to dispraise my lord with that same tongue which she hath praised him with above compare so many thousand times? That's maybe the worst part about it. It's hypocrisy. Mm. She says, go, counselor, kind of rejecting her. Mm. Go, counselor, thou and my bosom henceforth shall be twain, all to the friar to know his remedy, if all else fail. Myself have power to die. She calls her a fiend. You know, I think that's an appropriate response. It, it is, because there's nothing more toxic than somebody who doesn't know you or isn't curious enough to know you giving you advice on something that important. Right. So she takes a sleeping potion. Romeo doesn't know about it. Romeo wakes up. Act 5, scene 1. If I may trust the flattering truth of sleep, my dreams presage some joyful news at hand. Wonderfully ironic and sad line. He had this dream. He says, My bosom's lord sits lightly in his throne, and all this day an unaccustomed spirit lifts me above the ground with cheerful thoughts. I dreamt my lady came and found me dead. Strange dream that gives a dead man leave to think. And breathed such life with kisses in my lips that I revived and was an emperor. And then says maybe the next... These two lines are maybe my next favorite lines in the play. He says, Ah me, how sweet is love itself possessed, when but love's shadows are so rich in joy. Mm, that's so true. Even the, even scraps of love are beautiful and, yeah. and important and worth celebrating. Yeah. How sweet is love itself possessed, when but love's shadows are so rich in joy. He doesn't get this note from the friar that Juliet isn't actually dead. Rushes to the tomb kills Paris on the way, which is, again, a, si a sign oh, of... but at the tomb. That's right. Yeah. Kills Paris at the tomb, sign that Romeo is even farther away from what love has taught him about how to be in the world. Right, and now... Dispensing with Paris's life. Right, he's embittered. Yeah. And becomes violent, at, like all the other people. Mm. I mean, it's he's planning suicide, which that's violence against himself, of course, but, um, yeah, loves positive effect on him is worn off and the friar there are people coming right because of, of course it's a crime to be here i guess in the middle of the night in this tomb and not to mention if the wrong people are found in the wrong places you know capulets here or montagues there it will get violent the friar is afraid of this kind of violence and you know he's saying fear comes upon me 
Juliet wakes up, and the friar says, I hear some noise. Lady, come from that nest of death, contagion, and unnatural sleep. Come, come away, and she's not coming. So he just leaves. He says, I dare no longer stay. Which is very cowardly. <laughs> yeah. And Juliet doesn't leave, isn't afraid. Mm. Go get thee hence. Again, maybe channeling Jesus. For I will not away. Juliet never seems to fall out of love's beautiful spell. Mm-hmm. Never, really. No. I mean, there's that moment where she curses Romeo and then immediately takes it back. How could I do this? Oh, right. Um, For getting banished. Yeah, I think I, I liked what you said earlier about the tragedy of this book not being excess love, but not enough love. The tragedy is that Romeo is not able to rise from the hatred he grew up with. It's so a part of him that the end turns into a bloodbath. Hmm. When it really doesn't have to. I mean, I don't want to throw Romeo too much under the bus. I mean, he was, I think it, it was heroic work just elevating himself out of his violent culture for as long as he did. I mean, that's yeah. that's not nothing. No. Um, and creating this perfect moment, these perfect few moments with Juliet. Oh, yeah. Do they have to die? Why do they die? He becomes embittered and he feels like he is not worth it. His life is not worth it. Um, there's nothing left to live for. But of course, I mean, this is a tricky thing to say because obviously suicide is very complicated. This might be an example of Shakespeare writing symbolically instead of literally. Yeah. Maybe literally they don't have to die. And maybe you could say literally they wouldn't act this way. And this is a melodramatic overreaction to circumstances, maybe. Mm. But symbolically, again, we talked about this way back in the King Lear podcast, like he's He's not a writer of realism as much as he has a writer of kind of psychological symbology, you know. So their death is a necessary emblem of the way in which this passion, this youthful passion, as miraculous as it is, as important as it is, as divine as it is, is finite. Right, is as fragile as, for example, a cherry blossom. Exactly. Violently shaken off the branch in a big... Storm. Well, that's the perfect that's the perfect image to end on it, and we shouldn't say to that cherry blossom, "You failed because you were not immortal. Mm. You you were a bad cherry blossom. You overreacted. <laughs> you know, you had an excess of cherry blossomness. You should have saved yourself and lasted longer. Mm. No, 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 no. It blooms. It's here for a week. It makes all of our lives ten times better, mm. and it goes because it has to go because that's the nature of the thing." It's vulnerable. And if it wasn't vulnerable, it, it wouldn't be as miraculous. Mm. It's a pretty good play. <laughs> yeah. It's better than people say it is, and people say it's oh, pretty yeah. good. It, it really is. It's extremely hard to act. I mean, we'll stop now, but it's extremely hard to produce. Yeah, I've seen several versions of this, you know, on the stage and in movies, and it is hard to act because it's hard to pull off a convincing, youthful... It's hard to be youthful and mature at the same time, and it's hard to not look silly and melodramatic and overreacting. And Oh, I have to say Claire Danes makes it amazing. Makes an amazing Juliet. I'm, no, I believe that. I mean, there, yeah, I mean, there are certain... I haven't seen the... You know, I haven't seen it performed on a stage, so, but... But you know what I mean about how fine of a tightrope oh, yeah. this is to walk. It's... 
the wrong acting will turn this into like a sentimental mess. Yeah. So read the, 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 the ending messages. You should just rely on your imagination. Read it, you know, just mm-hmm. read it and it'll, it'll be better. Mm-hmm. As important as it is to view these performances as a way into the text. Would have loved to see um, Juliet. Performed by a man? <laughs> by, a, by a man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so strange. Another one of these defy thy father, d- deny thy father moments. Like, yeah, cultures get crazy from time to time. Mm-hmm. Cultures get crazy and need to be defied. So, I mean, certain aspects of them from time to time need to be defied. Yes. You know, there's, there's no denying that. But that's, that's one thing that makes Shakespeare, and now I'm still talking, I'm sorry, but <laughs> one thing that makes Shakespeare so great, he can write a play like King Lear in which defying authority ends in madness and chaos mm-hmm. and death. Yeah. I think that the subtle argument in King Lear is that authority should be defied extremely carefully and extremely gently and extremely rarely. And I think in this play, I'm getting an opposite, a slightly opposite argument that sometimes societies are corrupt enough that you have no choice but to rebelliously carve out your own little way of being. Hmm. You have to deny thy father. Sometimes. Yes. Like, Ro- like, like Juliet says to Romeo. Yeah. So for the poem of the day, perhaps this isn't my absolute favorite love poem. It's hard to beat Shakespeare himself on the topic. But it is certainly in the top three. It is by Edna St. Vincent Millay. It's a sonnet called Love is Not All. Love is not all. It is not meat, nor drink, nor slumber, nor a roof against the rain, nor yet a floating spar to men that sink and rise and sink and rise and sink again. Love cannot fill the thickened lung with breath, nor clean the blood, nor set the fractured bone. Yet many a man is making friends with death, even as I speak for lack of love alone. It well may be that in a difficult hour, pinned down by pain and moaning for release, or nagged by want past resolution's power, I might be driven to sell your love for peace, or trade the memory of this night for food. It well may be. I do not think I would. That's it for now. I'm not sure what we will be reading next, but something, and probably soon. In the meantime, keep reading, keep writing. Don't forget that you too have what it takes to become a great writer. <laughs>